Amen. Should we give these guys a round of applause? So inspiring, isn't it? Cool. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so nice to be together. And uh, if you're new here this morning uh, or online, just want to give you a really warm welcome. Uh, it's so good to have you here. And we love uh, getting to know new people amongst us and just uh, sharing life together. So it's great to have you here. And if you are new, then you're um, joining us in the third week of our uh, We Are The Church uh, series where we're going through different pictures of uh, how the Bible talks about church. Um, Partly so we can see the, the beauty of, of, of the one uh, great story that scripture is from, from start to finish. But partly also so that we can uh, just know our, our purpose in, in the here and now and in, in the part of the story that we are in. Uh, that The Bible gives a number of pictures that, that speak into kind of who we are, uh, what we're about. And today we get to look at what is actually one of my favorite themes in the whole of scripture, which is uh, we are the temple of the living God. And that's a quote from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 um, in the Bible. I'm going to unpack that bit this morning. So don't worry if you're like, what on earth is that? Because um, there's lots of our questions as we, as we come to these things. But I want to start with a question. When I say the word temple, I wonder what comes to mind uh, for you. It, it perhaps could be um, you know, a place of worship, I suppose, is, is the most kind of common um, answer to that. You might kind of see around the city, oh, there's a, a Sikh temple here or, or whatever, and that might be kind of where we go. But in, in Bible times, in, in Old Testament and New Testament times, actually, um, the, the idea of, t of temple was, was a little bit wider. Um, it was actually more like what we would mean when we talk about a place like Old Trafford's or Glastonbury, if it's not too soon to mention uh, said festival after the uh, live stream fail uh, on their part last night. Uh, but what I mean by that is that the, the idea in Old and New Testament times is that the temple is, is the residence of, of the God who is worshipped. So Old Trafford, the home of Manchester United football ground, it's there, that's where they dwell, if you like. That's their residence, where Glastonbury Festival, where, where it happens, where it dwells, where the, the worship takes place, if you like. Um, it's a place where, where culture is, is built. So I suppose for the, uh, for the football team, a certain kind of way of playing, uh, perhaps more of yesteryear than right now. But there you go. That's just a controversial comment. I'll just drop that one in. Uh, Glastonbury Festival, again, kind of a place culture it's built. I, I suppose, again, they, they both have the sense of drawing the, the kind of area around them into the one uh, purpose. So when you say Old Trafford, you think of the stadium, um, but that's actually an area um, in Manchester. When you say Glastonbury, you think of the festival, but it's a small town in Somerset. Um, someone asked me this week, JP, have you been to Glastonbury? I mean, look at me. Come on, what, what a silly question. I am nowhere near as cool enough to go to Glastonbury, but I have been to the town. So I was able to answer, yes, I have been to Glastonbury. And so when we think about this idea of temple, it's wider than just like a, a place of worship, if you like. Actually, in, in New Testament times as well, the same would happen with the place. You, um, the, the Old Testament particularly, we talk about Jerusalem or, or Zion sometimes it gets called. And, and it might just be meaning kind of uh, uh, the people there as the capital city, um, but actually often it's, it's meaning the temple. So when you see in the scriptures, let us go up to Zion, let us go up to Jerusalem, it's meaning let's go to the temple, let's go and, and see the, the dwelling place of God. Now, there is an absolutely incredible book on this topic, which so early into the message are we that none of you will remember, but I'm going to throw it up there anyway, because if you like anything of what I say today, you remember is that book that you referred to a couple of minutes in, The Temple and the Tabernacle, J. Daniel Hayes, fewer than 200 pages, lots of color and illustration. I find it so, so helpful. But he says that when you talk about all the different words that the scriptures use on this idea of temple, so 
temple, tabernacle, tent of meeting, sanctuary. You can sum them up in five phrases. And so this is kind of the fullness of all that we're talking about this morning. The first one is presence, that the temple is the dwelling place of God. It's the meeting point of heaven and earth. Second one, power. So a a place from which God rules as kings. Powerful things happen in the temple. Thirdly, purity. It's a place of holiness. Then praise. It's a place of worship. And then there's always priests involved. Fifthly, and um, today, uh, and, and just to explain the concepts of priests, that um, the idea is that there's, there's always uh, somebody in place who represents God to the people and the people to God, an, an intermediary, if you like. Now, today, what I'm going to do is do a whistle-stops whistle tour through the, um, the narrative of, of, of the Bible, kind of stopping in, in seven key places, just using this first word, presence, this kind of first theme, like the dwelling place of God, this meeting point of, of heaven and earth. I'm not gonna, we haven't got time to go through all five. We'd been here till about two o'clock or I'd have to speak at like two and a half times speed or something like that. And as far as I know, Chris Marsh on the sound desk is the only person that can make my voice do that um, online at least, funny as that would be. So we're just gonna use this first theme, like the temple, the presence, the place of God, the dwelling place of God. And we're gonna go through the scriptures and see what it has to say. So. Let's fasten our seatbelts. Let's off we, off we go right to the start where the temple firstly is a garden, a garden, the garden of Eden, right in uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Actually, the, the very first original temple was the whole of creation. God creates it to dwell in it. Again, that presence theme. Um, but he creates the garden of Eden so that he can dwell with his people. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. And it's important for us to know that God doesn't just like look around and think, where's the nicest place on earth? Right, Eden, I'll go there. No, he creates it as a place so that he can dwell with his people. And the scriptures say that he he walked in that garden with Adam and Eve. It's exactly the same language as would be uh, used later of of the priests in the temple, kind of walking in the temple, just um, communing together. And even at this, this early stage in the message, it's important just to, to stop and to say, God really does delight to dwell with his people. He doesn't just put up with us. It's his delight to dwell amongst us. And wherever you're at on your faith journey, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're just exploring things for the first time, I wonder what your view of God is and if it is that view of God, that he delights to be with me. You know, sometimes we can think of God almost as like some head of a political party where you kind of page your dues so you get to be there. Maybe you might be a useful pair of hands, but actually no interest in getting to know you. But no, God delights to dwell with you. I love these verses in, in Zephaniah 3.17 in the Bible. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That's, t- that's temple language, in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He really is a good father who delights to dwell with his children. Anyway, so the, the, uh, Adam and Eve kind of mess things up. They turn away from God. They get um, cast out of the garden. There's angels put at, at the entrance to it. And kind of the story of scripture, I suppose, continues in. Like God chooses a people. They get quite numerous. They end up as slaves in Egypt. And then God delivers them out of slavery um, 
you know, Prince of Egypt stuff, Moses leading them out of, uh, of slavery in Egypt. And they, they come to this mountain, which is the second stopping point, that the temple of God is, is a mountain. Mount Sinai, it gets called. They've just come out of slavery. Moses has actually been here before. He's their leader uh, just before uh, the Exodus, just before he delivered them from slavery. He goes and he sees this bush that is burning. Um, God says, take off your shoes because the place you're standing on is holy ground if we're to nip over into the kind of purity of temple idea. But this is exactly the same place. So burning bush kind of uh, a while before, now the mountain and the people are are at the foot of the mountain. and, And here's what it says. Have a listen for this idea of God dwelling with his people and what it means. So this is Exodus 19, uh, verse 16. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, that's like purify themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, So you see there, you've got this idea of a mountain where God's kind of dwelling at the top. There's the temple theme. The people are at the bottom. You get the three stages, like the bottom where most people can be. Uh, The priests can kind of come so far up, but then only one person, Moses, occasionally accompanied by an assistant, can go up right into the very presence of God. But again, we have to stop here and we have to see this through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ to say that we get to come right in to the presence of God. The beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to shout at him from a distance. We don't have to wonder if he's there. We don't have to kind of come through some, pre- some friend or some pastor. The only representative we need is Jesus Christ who takes us right into the very presence of God. We don't have to clean ourselves up and make ourselves right to get to him. Jesus has done that for us. I'm sure many of us uh, this week enjoyed the um, easing in uh, COVID restrictions that allowed people to uh, come into our houses uh, within certain limits. And um, we had some people staying with us. And uh, it's Duncan and Hannah, actually, who who lead Revelation Church Manchester, our Grace Connection Church up there. And it was such a joy to open the door to them and say, come on in. It's not come in to go out to the back. It's not come round the sides. And it just got me thinking how kind of gospel-esque some of these uh, things can be that there is no test to come into the presence of God. We don't have to obey rules to come into the presence of God. We don't have to wear a mask before God, hiding part of us. We can be ourselves truly with all of our faults just before him. There's no need to fear. 
as we come into the presence of God, except for the holy reverence of his purity that he has made us holy in Jesus. We can come just as we are, just like Moses, go right into his presence. And that means that there is no sin that you can have committed that can withhold you from his presence if you put your trust in him. There's no circumstance where you feel like you might have let God down that would prevent you from coming into his presence. There's no situation where you feel like a a disappointment or not having fulfilled everything that you wanted to be that can prevent you from coming into his beautiful, glorious presence. And what you'll find as you get there is healing and wholeness and challenge and grace and wonder and awe and reverence and your perspective totally changed. But from that mountain, when Moses was at the top and God was was talking to him, he starts to... um, instructs at Moses as to the, the third stopping place, which is the, the dwelling place of God will now become a, a, a massive tent uh, called the tabernacle. And we, we spoke on this actually as part of our Exodus series in, in May 2019, messages on the website. But again, you see the three stages. You remember just like the mountain, the people, the priests, the, uh, the Moses at the top in, in this tent, in this tabernacle where there was an outer court where most people could go. Then there was a holy place where only the priests could go. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go, only once a year, where the very glory of God dwelt. Even the high priest had to have a little kind of thing around his ankle to pull him out, lest he die in the presence of God. So magnificent um, was it. It was the meeting point of heaven and earth in that most holy place. And as you read the story in in the latter half of Exodus, What catches you is just the sheer beauty of the design of this thing. That there is intricate design, wonderful order. There's absolutely um, beautiful splendor in the kind of purple embroidery and the covering of everything with gold and what's kind of sewn into the, uh, the, the curtains that are around there. There's, there's such detail to it. There's huge symbolism everywhere. There's a, a table with bread and wine on a sign of, of a welcoming into the presence of God. There's a, a lampstand that would be, would be burning that's meant to look like the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, permanently burning, showing the permanence of the light and the beauty of God. It's so appropriate that it is crowned with his glory because it's so beautiful. And you know, as you read it and you read the intricacy and you see its place in the wider story, there's, there's a principle at place here, a creational principle where you're meant to see something beautiful, see how intricate it is, see how wonderful it is, see how it fits into the wider story of creation. And we're meant to think, if God can create something so beautiful there, then of course he can sort out the things that I bring to him, my struggles, my challenges. He's part of a wider creation principle. Do you know that every single snowflake in the world is utterly unique? Do you know that every single grain of sand in the world, when you examine it under a microscope, is utterly unique? Do you know that there, it, is, it is thought that there are more stars in space than there are grains of sand on the earth's shores. And we're meant to hear things like that, which are further developments of this beauty of the tabernacle. And we're meant to say, if God can do that, 
And if you can weave all of that together in the beautiful story of the world, then of course he can speak into the things that I can't see progress in in my life and I can't see a way forward. This week, um, uh, Emma was doing a, a piano lesson. Uh, so, um, Emma's my wife, sort of five o'clock in the day. So um, I had the kids and was trying to cook tea at the same time. And Zachary, my son, was uh, wanting to help uh, whilst I was cutting up raw chicken, which is a recipe for disaster. And um, don't worry about the distraction. We're family together. This is just a beautiful thing that we're, we're all together as family. And, um, and, and so he was wanting to help. So he was, he was kicking off, um, getting in tears that he couldn't help daddy. And meanwhile, Lizzie has got this, this little Ariel figure. You remember the Little Mermaid film? And um, Ariel had lost her shoes. I mean, maybe she should have stayed as a mermaid anyway, but Ariel had lost her shoes. Somewhere in the playroom, Zachary's screaming. I'm trying to sit him down, kind of calm him down because I don't want him to get raw chicken all over his face and all that. Lizzie's saying, Daddy, where's Ariel's shoes? And we're pulling out boxes and they're like one centimeter. Like where on earth are you going to find a one centimeter shoe somewhere in, in a whole house? I don't know. And just it was getting kind of more and more and the food was not being seen to, let's say. And... Um, just all of a sudden, there was this peace that just descended. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this blinking shoe. <laughs> I you know I'd just been preparing this thing in the day, just, just living in the beauty, the detail, the tabernacle and all the symbolism. And if God can create something so beautiful, of course, there is no issue that he cannot overcome. The story then moves on into the fourth stage where this, this temple, this kind of put, they, they took this thing round with them in the desert, the Israelites, it, um, this big tent. Um, but eventually when they got into the promised land, the land roughly equal to, to what we know as Israel today, um, it became a, a building, a, a physical building where uh, King Solomon um, said that he, he wanted to kind of, uh, was called by God to, to build a, a permanent structure uh, for him. And it got called the temple, which is uh, nice because all the other uh, terms get a bit confusing. So this, this was the temple. This was a, a, an actual building uh, where God would dwell. And it was the, the, one of the high points of, of, the, of the nation's history, really, that this thing was magnificent. It was huge. And the glory of God dwelt in it. And yet, even in the Bible texts, we are meant to spot that there's something just not quite right. When the tabernacle, the tent was being built, the terms in the seven stages, just like creation, the terms all say, the Lord said, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord encouraged, the Lord stipulated, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Whereas when Solomon built it, it's all Solomon did. Solomon said, Solomon built. There's just some hints that not everything is quite right. And that God in his grace still came in his beauty and glory and filled this place. But quite soon after, the people of God got very unfaithful. They started worshiping all sorts of other gods, not honoring God as, as he'd asked them to. And actually, through, uh, God sent prophet after prophet to, to give them messages, to call them back in the line, into line. They just ignored them all. And so eventually, God gave them over to the superpower of the day, the Babylonians, who came and they destroyed the temple. And Ezekiel chapter 1 actually records that the very presence of God, remember, temple as dwelling place, the very presence of God left the temple. And they went off into, um, ex into exile, into, in captivity. And um, as they came back, um, uh, kind of 1700 or so years later, um, they rebuilt this temple, this, this physical building, but the beauty and the glory of God 
did not inhabit it in quite the same way. There's no recording of God coming in his precious glory. Remember the priest kind of coming up with the, the thing around his ankle? There's no recording of that. It's the dwelling place of God where God no longer dwells. It reminded me a little bit of um, the city center during lockdown. I don't know if you had the misfortune of, of walking through. So sad just to see the shops were still there the merchandise was still on the shelves, the clothes hanging off the pegs, the restaurants were still there with all their tables laid out and their art on the walls to create atmosphere. And yet just the life was gone. And we meant to see these events as, as an application of the seriousness of our sin, of the seriousness of the choices we make that turn our back on God when we go against his will, that, that without Jesus causes a separation between us and him. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need saving. And even as we, as we come to Jesus, he has forever made us right with God, but it's why we need to be a repentant people to keep whole and cleansed our relationship with him. When you love someone, you realize you got something wrong. The idea is you're so quick to say sorry. That's what it means to be a repentant people. And so this, this temple was destroyed and then rebuilt. God didn't inhabit it. And then the various superpowers of the day kind of came and went, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And where we end up to just before Jesus was born is that King Herod, the bad guy from the Christmas story. And he was like a, a Roman puppet king ruling in uh, Judea, where the, uh, the temple was in Galilee in the north. And, and, and he kind of spruced this temple up. He made it absolutely magnificent. You read in the gospels how the Jews talked about this temple building and it was wonderful. They were so proud of it. And yet God was not inhabiting it. And so then we, we, we're kind of taken into the, the, the fifth stage where the dwelling place of God becomes a person, a person, Jesus Christ. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, in worship here, a, a girl called Beth in the church came and uh, gave a, a contribution into the microphone. She started praying about Jesus being with us. And um, it was absolutely beautiful. And she, um, she used this, this scripture from uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. And, um, and here's what it says. I think the words will come up on the screen. Mike's beaten me to it. There you go. Um, our visuals team service so well, aren't they wonderful? Um, it says this, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh. God became a man and dwelt among, amongst us, literally tabernacled, tented amongst us. And we have seen his glory. That's temple language. And it actually gives, um, it gives fresh significance to this, this theme of presence, doesn't it? The meeting point of heaven and earth now in a person. God is taking up residence in his creation. Once again, it gives fresh significance to this story in, uh, in Luke chapter 2, where um, I suspect many of us uh, will have kind of heard it from the Christmas story, but I, I wonder if we've realized its significance. I know I certainly um, hadn't before I, I read about it. Luke 2 verse, um, verse 25, where Jesus as a baby is being presented um, in the temple and talks to this guy, Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus 
to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up his, in his arms, blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. For the first time in about 500 years, the glory of God was returning to the temple in the person of Jesus. Hang on, something in God's great plan is going on here. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus grew up and did many wonderful things. And then he does this, this seemingly strange act of cleansing the temple. He goes into the temple building. He turns over the tables of the money changers. He drives out all of those who are selling the animals that were used for sacrifices. And, um, and you think, well, what's going on? What's going on is that Jesus is prophesying and bringing a message about the ending of the temple, which of course would happen in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. But he's saying the glory of God dwelling in a building, uh-uh, no more. He's temporarily ceasing the temple activity because he himself is a greater temple. And then of course he goes on to the cross and takes all the sin of the world upon himself. Every mistake that we have ever made, past, present, future, all of Israel's unfaithfulness, he takes it on himself. And he is, to use temple language, our sacrifice before God. He is, to use temple language, our scapegoat. All the stuff that we've done wrong, where we've rejected God, gets put on him and he gets sent away to death. He is the priest before God on our behalf who cleanses us and ensures that our offering of worship of our lives is acceptable. It's the event that defined history forever. And so it's no surprise that creation itself, the original temple shook as Matthew's gospel records. It's no surprise that there was a demonstration that the way to God was now open as the curtain of separation was torn. It's no surprise that you saw it in the skies as darkness filled the land and heard it from the ground as rocks cracked apart, that you see it on the faces of those who witness it as the centurion seeing him on the cross says, surely this man was the son of God. Folks, this is how we know that God delights to dwell with his people because he came himself to ensure that he could. And then, of course, as Jesus ascends on high, raised to life, he appears to many, and he ascends on high, goes uh, to, to be with the Father. And the temple of God now becomes a people as he pours out his spirit on all flesh, on, all, on us. And it, it says this in um, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived today... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. God himself filled his people. He fills us. And we know that as the spirit falls upon us, he always empowers us to mission. And if we're to steal again the theme of priests, he empowers us to represent God to the world in our evangelism. 
represent the world to him in our prayers. And Peter, when he's uh, commenting on these things, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter was a, a follower of Jesus. He went on to be a leader in the early church. He says this, 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you yourselves like living stones, what was the temple building made of? Stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, to be a holy priesthood, that's temple language, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, we are the temple of the living God. We are the dwelling place of God now, his residence. We are the meeting place of heaven and earth. He delights to dwell with us. I loved it when um, Ben last week was talking about uh, being kingdom ambassadors where we are. And temple and kingdom are uh, two very closely related themes. And, and perhaps the dimension that temple adds to this is that when we are being ambassadors, wherever God has called us to be, we do not go there empty. We go there as carriers of the presence of God, as the temple of the living God. So when you are uh, in your lecture theaters, in your college, when you are uh, changing your baby's nappies, when you are stood at the school gate, when you are sending your emails, seeing your clients or your patients, you are empowered as the temple of the living God. It's not just you that is there, but Christ in you. I wonder if you've noticed that so often when we worship together, People who are new to church often get very touched by seeing the dynamic of the people of God together or, or are very amazed by the community of God in action. It's because we're the dwelling place of God and he is not dormant when he inhabits us. And that should increase our expectations of how God might use us. That when we seek to build relationship, when we invite friends to Alpha, when we serve our neighbors, when we give out food parcels, when we seek to do the things that God has called us to do, we do not do it simply with our own words, but we do it empowered by him. We are living stones together. And that means that we need one another. It means that each of us has a role to play, that each of us is valued. It means that each of us is missed when we're not around. It means that we need to be together to house what God wants to do in our day. Because we, by the grace of God, are the basis for more stones to be added to this living temple. The stone doesn't stand by itself. It stands together with others. We're almost out of time, but I'm just going to finish on the, the last stopping point, which is that this isn't the end of the story, because one day the dwelling place of God will be a city speaks of this Revelation chapter 21. Listen out for the kind of dwelling of God idea. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away.
And it goes on to describe this new Jerusalem, this holy city, the meeting place of heaven and earth, as high as it is wide as it is long, just like the most holy place, filled with jewels and precious stones, just like the Garden of Eden was, just like the breastplates of the priests in the temple was. It says there's no temple building needed because God himself is there, delighting to dwell with his people forever. And that is where we will be because we've put our trust in him. If you're exploring faith, that is where you can be if you surrender your life to Jesus. Let's have the band up. We're going to finish soon. But Pastor, we just have the final slide, Mike, just to, as the band get ready, just to revisit this to say, the dwelling place of God was Eden. God delighting to dwell with his people. And it was Sinai, the mountain. Yet we get to come right in. And it's the tabernacle. So beautiful. And if God can sort something that wonderful out in that level of detail, of course he can overcome our challenges. Then it became a building that ultimately God left. A warning of the seriousness of our sin. But then the dwelling place of God became a person, Jesus Christ, who atoned for our every sin, gave his life for us, and then empowered us for the temple of God to be a people that we might speak his name to the world. That one day, this temple will be a city where we will dwell with him forever. Amen.